Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoyed the message. Um, but I'm also excited about today's message. Um, so if you can, uh, take your Bibles out, uh, take out your phones if you have them. We're going to be reading from Judges chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 30. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So if you have your phones or your iPads, uh, you can turn to the English Standard Version. Uh, again, that's Judges chapter 16, uh, 15 to 30. I have three points as I normally do. Uh, the first one is called Samson's Curse. And we're going to be looking at the thing that plagued him, that cursed him really as a person. Uh, the second thing we'll look at is Samson's Cure. Um, so the cure to that curse that Samson had. And then the third the third point will be the gospel uh, according to Samson. The gospel according to Samson. Uh, so those are our three points for today. If you're able to at this time, if you could rise with me as we read God's word together. Uh, Judges chapter 16, uh, verses 15 to 30. I'll go ahead and read this for us. We'll pray if you could remain standing while we pray. And then afterwards, I'll go ahead and seat you after our prayer is done. This is Judges chapter 16, 15 to 30. And she, that's Delilah, said to him, Samson, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that, she had, uh, that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with brown shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord, God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the, uh, the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more 
than those whom he had killed during his lifetime. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, what an amazing story. What an amazing, amazing story. And Lord, we're so thankful that you preserved these words for us. And Father, we pray that during this time that your Holy Spirit would come and God, your Holy Spirit would help us to understand, to learn from the life of Samson and to really apply these truths to our hearts. May you soften our hearts now, God, that we might hear. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Long story, but it was captivating, was it not? Man, the Bible is awesome. It's crazy action, right? Um, well, I don't, you know, for me, I just came back from Detroit. I was in Detroit for a few days uh, visiting my older brother who just got done with his seven-year medical residency. And uh, so he had this little graduation. But one of the things that I had forgotten about my older brother, his name is Thomas, by the way, um, is he loves taking pictures of family members in these compromising positions. And he loves sharing them with other people. And I don't know why he does this, but he started doing this in college, and it's just something he's just continuously done. In fact, when I was there, he would bust out his phone and show me these uh, compromising photos of his wife without makeup in these weird positions, like with her face all skewed, and he would just laugh at her. I remember we were driving to a restaurant, and uh, my mom happened to fall asleep in the back seat. Her head was tilted back, her mouth was open, so all the mosquitoes and the flies could fly in while she fell asleep. And then my brother, without hesitation, busts out his phone and takes a picture of her sleeping. And then he shows me, and he starts giggling and laughing like he's a college frat boy who just took a picture of his whatever drunk friend, you know. And he's showing me these things, and I'm like, why do you do the things that you do? Like, why are you like this? Why do you still choose to act like a little child at times? Because he's this grown guy. He's a neurosurgeon now. He has a degree after degree behind his name, and yet he still chooses to act like a little boy. And so I, uh, today, like, I wanted to share something that my brother did that's a little bit embarrassing, not a whole lot embarrassing, that also perplexes me about his behavior, which is this. My brother, and this, this happened while I was on this trip too, is he does this thing where he scratches the side of his nose right here. And he says, he tells me that there's some kind of oil here. And then when he's done, when he's done scratching his nose, he sniffs that area he just scratched. I don't know why he does this. And, and I've seen other people do this too. They'll scratch an armpit. They'll scratch their ear. They'll scratch the back of their leg. And then they'll bring their hand to their nose and they'll smell it. And I'm like, why are you smelling that disgusting part of your body? Do you know, you know what it smells like. It smells bad. Why would you want to smell it again? But people do this and it perplexes me. Another thing that perplexes me about humans is we text and we drive. And that's not just, I'm not just saying that to you. I do that too. In fact, on my way to church, I had such an urgent message to send my wife that I sent it while I was driving. And all it said was, see you later. That's all I had to send, but I felt in that moment it was necessary to send it to her and to put my own life at risk for this very, very important message. And I don't know why we do the things that we do. And there are so many countless other things that I find perplexing about our behavior. Because oftentimes it just doesn't make sense when we look at it. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because in the same way, when I read the story of Samson and Delilah, I'm perplexed. I'm like, Samson, why would you do what you did? Like, why did Samson tell Delilah his secret? Like, why would he do that? Because if you remember prior to this passage that we just read, Samson doesn't just become a political nuisance to the Philistines. He becomes a national threat to them. I don't know if you remember, there was a story where he takes 300 foxes. He captures them all. 
And he takes their tails and he lights the tails on fire and then he sends them into the Philistine camp. It, it burns down different tents and villages and homes and these Philistines get extremely upset. So they go after uh, Samson, they, they take his wife, they take his father-in-law, they kill him. And then they take Samson, they bind him up and they take him back into the Philistine camp. But of course we know that Samson allowed him to take him in. He goes and he breaks free, he takes the jawbone of a donkey and he slays a thousand Philistines. And so these Philistines are just driven mad. Because if you don't know, right, especially this is not only you know, in popular Christianity as well as the secular world, everybody knows the story of Samson. Right? He was a man born with super strength. He was literally a biblical avenger. Right? And even in the story, it says that he wants to avenge. Right? He's an avenger. He has super strength. He, he has all these things. And so the Philistines want to find out what it is about Samson that makes him strong to make him weak once again. And so they tap Delilah on the shoulder and they're like, hey, Delilah. Tell us what, it, what the secret of his strength is. Because it seems like he's taking a liking to you. Now mind you, it's not just any old person that comes up to, to Delilah. It's the Philistine political leaders. It's the leaders of the Philistine nation that come up to Delilah. This, this nobody. And they say, find out the, strength, uh, the secret to his strength. And so she does. She tries three times before becoming successful. And you would think that after the first attempt at trying to get his secret, Samson would be like... Hey man, why are you trying to sabotage me? Get out of here. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He lets Delilah continuously trick him again and again and again. But here's the thing. We know Samson's not only strong, but he's also smart. Samson knows that she's trying to trick him, and so she, he lies to her every single time. Three times she tries to find out his secret, but three times Delilah is tricked by Samson. And so in the first account, uh, Samson says, if you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will actually lose my strength and you can kill me. And so that very night, Delilah ties him up with seven fresh bowstrings and then she says, the Philistines are upon you. And then Samson breaks out, he looks around, there's no one there. At this point, if I'm Samson, I'd be like, hey woman, what the heck is your problem? Why would you do this to me? And then I would kick her out, I'd do whatever, you know, I don't know, I'd break up with her, whatever, right? I would, I would get her out of there though. But he doesn't do that. He lets her stay. And then a second time she tricks him. And she says, come on, Samson, tell me. Please, baby, please, honey. Right? That's what my wife does whenever she wants something expensive. Right? She's like, come on, please, honey. You know, She cuddles up to me, grabs my arm, tells me how strong I am when I'm not that strong. <laughs> she does the same thing. She says, tell me what your secret is. And Samson, again, lies to her. He says, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used. So she binds him up with unused ropes. And again, she's like, the Philistines are upon you. He breaks it open. He's like, where? And she's like, oh, I tricked you, you know. Again, if I were Samson, the second time I'm like, hey, why are you doing this to me? Get out. He doesn't do that. Let's just stay. Third time, he tells her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pen, I will lose my strength. And so again, she does it. And again, he breaks free. This fourth and final time, why the heck would Samson now tell her the truth? He just saw for himself that she's trying to kill him. She's trying to take away his strength. She wants to get rid of him. Why in the heck would she tell? Why would, why would he tell her this? And this is why Samson's behavior perplexes me. Because he knows that Delilah is trying to sabotage him. And yet he tells her the secret to his strength. So now here's the reason. There's a lot of reasons. But here's the reason that I want to focus in on today. If you look at verses 19 and 20 with me, it says this. She made him sleep on her knees and she called the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. This is after he told her the secret to his strength. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
And he awoke from his sleep and said, now underline this part. This is the part that you want to pay attention to. I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Do you see what Samson is saying? He says, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. You see, Samson had this idea that he was essentially invincible. He thought that even though his head was shaved, he would not actually lose his strength. He believed that even though he lost his hair, that the strength did not come from God, but actually it came from himself. And the reason why Samson believed this is because if you read earlier, it says that he was a Nazarite, which means that he made a vow at birth to keep certain things. And there were actually three things that Nazarites were, uh, were vowed to keep. The first thing was they were, they were not to touch or go near a dead body. But if you know the story of Samson, there's an account where Samson actually takes a lion, he fights the lion, he kills the lion, the lion is dead on the ground, he goes away, he comes back and he finds that bees have actually infested the body of the lion. And in fact, they've created a hive within the lion. And so he reaches in, he pulls out the honey and he starts eating the honey. And then he goes back home and he gives the honey to his mom and his dad. Very, very strange story. And yet what happens? Does Samson lose his strength? No. He does not lose his strength. In fact, he keeps his strength and he has victory and success again and again. In fact, the, the second uh, vow the Nazarite had was not to drink any wine, and yet Samson broke this vow as well. Nazarites were not supposed to touch, not supposed to taste any wine, and yet in chapter 14 of Judges, it tells us that Samson threw this great big feast, and scholars across the board say that this means that Samson got drunk. Samson had a lot, a lot of wine, and yet again, he did not lose his strength after breaking that vow. The third vow that they made was to not allow a razor to ever touch their head. And so you see, with each breaking of the vow, his strength never left him, and therefore Samson felt invincible. In other words, let me, let me put it like this, okay? Let me kind of summarize everything I've been saying. No matter what Samson did, he always managed to find success. He lived incredibly reckless, and no matter how reckless his living got, he always managed to find success. And this is why Samson told Delilah. Because he didn't actually think his strength would go after she cut his hair. Here's what I'm getting at. While adversity is on, hard on us spiritually, success is even harder on us. Let me say that again. While adversity is hard on us spiritually, success is even harder. The most successful people in the world tend to be the people that are the furthest from God. And that's, that's what this whole sermon's about today, friends. Is that, look, like, imagine, imagine yourself. Imagine, uh, uh, imagine a man who works extremely hard at his job. And he wants to prove himself through financial success, through, through status. What is the worst possible thing you could think happening to this person? Probably career failure. But actually, I would argue that career failure is not the worst thing that could happen to him. Actually, career success is the worst thing that could happen to him. Because see, in career failure, he could actually learn to trust God again. He could actually learn to, to see that he's been idolizing his job and his career and his money. He could learn to be humble once again. But yet career success, career success would sometimes mean that this guy will forget who God is. In success, he will become prideful. In success, it will only confirm his belief that he can fulfill himself and control his own life. See, the worst thing that can happen to you is not failure. It's actually success. 
Last week we saw Gideon and how he was in the pits of his own failure and how there were problems after problems arising. And yet this week what I'm here to tell you is that failure is not the worst thing. It's actually success for you. You know, Jim Collins, I've mentioned him before. He wrote a book called Good to Great. Well, he followed up that book with another book called How the Mighty Fall. And he wrote this book because in his studies of good to great companies, he realized that there were a few that actually went bankrupt after he published his book. In fact, one of the companies that he studied was a company called Circuit City. It no longer exists. They, they were pummeled by Best Buy and they went out of business and they tanked. And so he wanted to see what causes companies to start at great and then fall to failure. And he actually identifies five stages of decline. And I'm only going to talk about the first one because the first one's the most important. He said the first step to a company failing, he calls it the hubris born of success. If you don't know what hubris means, I, I didn't know either. I had to look it up. It just means pride. Pride born of success. Stage one kicks in when people become arrogant regarding success virtually as an entitlement and they lose sight of the true underlying factors that created success in the first place. In other words, the first steps towards failure is actually success, he says. The first steps towards failure is actually succeeding in life. Because what happens is you become arrogant. You become prideful and you say, no, I don't need to listen to this person. I don't need to listen to these market factors. I don't need to listen to this person's advice. I've done what I've done and I've been successful and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And guess what? That's what causes companies to fail. And in the same way, this is true of our spiritual lives. Success causes us uh, to, 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 to easily forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we are the cause of our own blessings. Success builds pride and arrogance because the sinful heart always wants to say that God's blessings are a result of our own hard work. Our sinful hearts are constantly saying, God, you know what? I did this. How dare you take credit for this, God? I'm the one who worked hard. You not know how many hours I put into my job? You know, I remember when I was younger, I used to tell people, hey, don't give homeless people money. When I, especially when I was in high school, I remember telling my friends, hey, if you ever see those people on the side of the road who are homeless, begging for, uh, you know, some, some money, I was like, don't give them any money. I said, you know why? Because they're irresponsible. They're lazy. They didn't work hard. They, didn't, they don't deserve any money. They deserve what they deserve. They didn't work hard, and therefore, that's why they're there. And I remember one of my pastors, he gave a sermon once, and he, and he actually used this as an illustration. And he, he essentially, and what I got from his sermon was this. He basically said, do you really believe that everything you have now is because of your hard work? Because that's what you're essentially saying when you're saying you don't want to help these people. You're saying they got there because they didn't work hard, but I got to where I am because I worked hard. Everything I have, all my blessings are because of my hand, because of my success, because of my glory, because of my hard work. And he's saying, do you really believe that? Because if you don't help them, that's what you're saying. You're saying that you are where you are, not because of God, but because of you. Do you presume to believe that you earned all the blessings in your life? Do you really believe that? Because you could have been born anywhere. You didn't have to be born into a community that valued education. You could have been born in a community that devalued education. You could have been born into a poor, poor family instead of a, 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 you know, a, a relatively rich one. You could have been born 200 years ago in the Amazon jungles and you would have never known what Harvard was. You would have never known what these different colleges were. Everything that you have in your life is because of God and Him alone, not because of your hard work. And yet our success will constantly tell us, no, it's because I earned it. Look, I think this is a message our church needs to hear. This is something that I need to hear too. 
Because we live in a city called Seattle, which is probably one of the fastest growing cities in our nation. And it's economically growing as well. Every single one of you, I talk to you, and man, you guys are either working great jobs, have great paying jobs as a program, uh, you know, software engineer, whatever, UX designer, as a, you know, a manager, product manager for, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, whatever it might be. And I'm telling you, success is not all that it, it, it looks out to be. You know, if you remember back in Judges chapter 6, this is why God cuts down Gideon's army from this massive army of 32,000 people to 300. And this is what God says. He says, the men with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Look, And then look what he says after. He says, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. That's why God cuts his army down, because he doesn't want Gideon to boast. But you know what's crazy about the story of Gideon? At the end of Gideon's life, Actually, Gideon becomes incredibly prideful. He has victory after victory, success after success. And guess what he does at the end? It looks like the golden calf scene in Exodus chapter 30, where Aaron is getting all the the jewelry and the medals from the people. That's what Gideon does. He gets all the jewelry and the medal from the people, and he creates this ephod, this golden ephod. And it says that the people of Israel worshipped the ephod, and they didn't worship God. Because Gideon was essentially saying, look, this place, this my place is a place of worship. Like, not that other place, not where the other ephod is. This is where you worship. And so he made people bow down to this ephod. And it's because of Gideon's success that he was led astray from God. Look, in Luke Luke chapter 6, Jesus has some staunch warnings for us. Very, very staunch. These are not my words, friends. I I did not come up with these words. So don't shoot me, okay? Don't hurt me or hate me for these, okay? This is Jesus saying this, okay? So if you love Jesus, if Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, this is your master talking to you. In Luke chapter 6, verse 20, he said, Blessed are the poor. He doesn't say poor in spirit. He gives two sermons where he says poor in spirit one time, and the other time he says blessed are just the physically poor people. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, just four verses later, he flips it. And he says this, But woe to you who are rich. Woe. Do you know what woe means? It means cursed are you. Cursed are you if you're rich. Why? Because because you have received everything you've ever desired. You've received your consolation, he says. Again, this is not me. I'm not making this stuff up. This is Jesus himself saying this to us. So what are you trying to say, Pastor Eric? Are you saying that Christians can't be rich? Are you saying that Christians can't have wealth? No, I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm trying to say. Wealth and success puts you at a serious spiritual disadvantage. It puts you at a serious spiritual disadvantage. Let me put it like this. You know, whenever I'm around guys, uh, especially shorter guys, uh, they always say, man, I wish I were taller. I wish I were, instead of 5'2", I wish I were 5, you know, Nine, five, ten. I wish I was six feet. I wish I was six, five. And the reason why is because height gives you an advantage in life. Sometimes, right? It makes you more handsome. Girls think you're handsomer. They think you're more confident. So therefore, guys who are taller, sometimes I'm more confident, right, etc. It's not that all tall guys are like that. It's just that it gives you this advantage. Same thing in the NBA, right? It doesn't mean that you have to be six foot and over to be in the NBA. But it just so happens that most people in the NBA happen to be six foot or over because height is an advantage, Now, again, there are people in the NBA who are not six feet, right? There are people like Spud Webb, Nate Robinson, Muggsy Bogues, um, you know, uh, Calvin Murphy. These guys made it to the NBA without being six feet. But it's a huge, huge advantage if you have height. 
In the same way, Jesus is saying you and I are at a serious spiritual disadvantage because of our wealth. Because our wealth and our success blinds us. And it causes us to believe that we are the makers of ourselves. That we are God. That we are masters. That we are in control. You know, um, I remember back in 2013, I went on this mission trip across Southeast Asia. I visited Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar. Uh, and I went from, with these different pastors from all these different states as a vision trip. And one of the pastors that came brought his wife and his kids, his three kids. And as we were journeying around, our first stop was this very poor, poor village in Thailand. And we visit, visited it, and there, you know, some of the homes had like these tin uh, tops uh, with you know, little wooden beams. As their, It was basically not even a home. Their toilets were in the ground. They had no food. They were skin. Uh, they, you, know, you could see all their bones and skins because they had no food. And one of the little girls of this one pastor just started crying. She was probably about 10 years old. She started weeping. She was like, Dad, like, how could this be? Like, how could there pe- be people in the world like this? She was this girl that was born and raised in SoCal, and she, all she's known is wealth. She starts weeping, and she starts crying. And on the way back, she's still weeping. She's still crying. She's like, man, I feel so sorry for those people. I feel so sorry for those people. And the missionary who was in the van with us turned around, and he looked at her, and he said, hey, don't feel bad for them. He said, don't feel sorry for them. He said, did you know that actually they feel sorry for you? And she was like, and we were just like, oh, like, what, what do you mean they feel sorry for us? He's like, they feel sorry for you because your wealth blinds you from God. You will never know God as intimately as we have because of your wealth and your success. These people, when they pray, they pray because their life depends upon it. When they humble themselves, they humble themselves like their life depends on it. You know, in the, in, in, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, to, it, Jesus teaches the people, to, you know, this day, give us this day our daily bread. When wealthy people pray this day our daily bread, we pray it as if, you know, oh, some spiritual bread, some kind of, you know, mystical bread. But for people who are dying of hunger, they are literally praying for bread. When they pray, they pray. When they seek God, they seek God. And this is why being rich and being successful is actually a spiritual disadvantage. You know, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he wrote a book called King's Cross. And it's a, it's a book that journeys through the gospel of Mark. And in, in part of the book, he, he quotes a, a historian named Andrew Walls. And he basically talks about how Andrew Walls has noted that every single world religion has had a center, a mecca for their religious uh, practices. So, for example, uh, he says that Islam started in Arabia and is still in the Middle East today. Buddhism in the Far East is still there today. Uh, Hinduism started in India and is primarily there today. But he said Christianity is the only religion that's moved around. It's, it's moved around constantly throughout time and throughout history. And the center of it has never been in one place. And the, 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 the kind of interviewer was asking Andrew Walls, like, why is that? Why has Christianity been moving around? Why has the center of it been moving around? And he basically said something like this. He said, uh, uh, Christianity is, when it's in a place of power and wealth for a long period of time, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can become muted or even lost. You see, here's the point. Christianity historically has never done well with the rich and the powerful. It's always been done well under those who are impoverished, for those who are poor and who are poor in spirit. I know this is horrible news. This is a curse. This is why this is Samson's curse. Because friends, for you and I, our success does not mean blessings. Our success can mean a spiritual curse at times. 
So let's move on to our second point, Samson's cure. How do, we, how do we avoid this? How do we become people who are humble? How do we become people who are not overtaken by our success, our pride, and our arrogance? And here's the first thing. If you're taking notes, you can write this down as a part of the solution. The first thing is being humbled. It's not a great solution. It's a sucky one, in fact. It's going to discourage you even more. It's actually being humbled. You know, one thing that's striking about Samson is he's probably the most evil judge in all of the book. Uh, he kills people. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he, he sleeps with prostitutes. He steals. He vandalizes. He plays tricks on people. He does all sorts of evil stuff. And in fact, Samson throughout his ministry life only prays twice. Throughout the whole story, whatever, the three, four chapters that he's alive in this book, he only prays twice. And the first prayer is one of the most arrogant prayers of all. But as we saw in our story, at the very end of his life, that's Samson's second prayer. And Samson's second prayer is seeped in humility. He's like, oh Lord, please strengthen me just this one time. He recognizes that all of his strength and power came from God and him alone. He recognizes in that moment that he's nobody without God. And he prays this sincere, humble prayer. And it only came after his eyes were gouged out. After he was turned over to the Philistines, after he had to entertain the Philistines, which, by the way, we don't even know what that means. Maybe he danced naked in front of them. Maybe they threw fruit at him or nasty vegetables or whatever. But he did things that would have made him humiliated in front of all these people. And it's only after that amount of torture and humiliation that Samson then humbles himself and recognizes the true nature of who he is. That he is just like us. He's weak. And the only reason why he was strong was because of God and him alone. See, the cure to our success is actually being humbled. And sometimes the only way God can humble you is to actually humiliate you. I know that sucks. That sucks a lot. But that is sometimes the only way that God can do it. You know, one of my pastors used to say this. He said, never pray for humility because the way God gives you humility is by humiliating you. (laughs) Man, that's hard news. That is hard, hard news. You know, I mentioned this last week, but God is not going to sprinkle you with humble dust. He's going to humble you. He's going to break you down. And here's the thing that God is doing. God is not actively like persecuting you and punching you or doing things to you. All God is doing is he's saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release my spirit, spirit from you. See, if you notice, the reason why Samson loses his strength is not because his hair actually gets cut short. It's actually, it's actually because the Spirit of God leaves Samson. And his presence is no longer with Samson. All the strength that he received from God was pulled back. And God says, I'm going to reveal to you who you truly are without me. You think you're strong by yourself? You're not. Let me show you how weak and powerless you really are without me. Let me show you who you really are. And that's all God says. is I'm, I'm not going to humiliate you and do these things. I'm just going to simply pull back and show you. Okay, you think you're God? Okay, I'll, I'll let you do it. You, you be God. You try to do it on your own. And you can't. God says, you see, all of this blessing, all of this stuff that I've given to you is because of my hand and mine alone. You know, I just, uh, me and my wife have been on this Keanu Reeves craze. Uh, we, we've been so fascinated by Keanu Reeves. I, I think it's because he came out with that uh, cameo and Always uh, Be My Maybe on Netflix, the Asian movie. And uh, there's just a lot of things that go around about Keanu Reeves. So I went back and I rewatched all three Matrixes because I was just... I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about the Matrixes. I just want to rewatch it. But if you remember, Keanu Reeves plays a character named Neo. And Morpheus is this guy who wants to free him from the Matrix. If you guys have not watched the movie, I'm going to ruin it. I apologize. 
but you have like 20 years, I'm sorry, you know. Um, but, you know, Morpheus comes to him and he basically says, look, I can show you the truth. I can show you the reality of who you are, that you're not free, you're not this autonomous being, but you're a slave to all these machines. And so if you remember, he unplugs uh, uh, Keanu Reeves from the Matrix, uh, and he puts him, you know, he rests, he does all these things, and then he puts him back into this training program for the first time where he teaches him what the Matrix is. And after that teaching is over, Keanu Reeves comes out, and he's panicked, he's freaked out, because he's starting to understand the reality of who he is. And so, I don't know if you remember the scene, he gets, he gets really upset, he's, he's like, this can't be true, this can't be true, and then he throws up and he passes out. And Morpheus goes to him later on, he says, like, I'm so sorry, I don't usually do this for older people because they can't handle the truth that they were actually slaves uh, throughout this entire, in, the, in their entire lives. He said, usually people will die if they, if they have this news handed to them. And in the same way, what God will do to you is he will just show you the truth of who you are. He's not punishing you, he's not doing anything, he's just saying, look, you, you think you're God? Okay, let me show you who you really are. I'm gonna with, I'm just gonna withdraw a little bit and let you let you do your own thing and see how far you get. You know, my son um, has been. He's, his name is Josiah. He's you know about two years old now, and he's been climbing a lot of things. And on the playgrounds, he'll climb, climb, climb. He's climbing up these ladders. And but one of the things my son does, which is kind of crazy, is he'll just fall backwards. He's just like he'll just stop holding on. And he'll just kind of fall backwards. And so I know he does this. So I stand behind him and I catch him every time. He falls back where you catch it, and I put him back up, and then I put his legs, and he starts climbing up again. Part of me was like, man, maybe I should just let him go one time, and just so he doesn't do that anymore. I don't know how to teach him not to do this, except to just let him go and fall. Of course, I'm not going to do that. Child Protective Services might come after me. but So I've never done that, right? But, um, but what my son does afterwards is strange. He climbs up. I'm catching him. I'm helping him up. He gets to the top of the playground, and you know what he does? He goes like this. Like, he did it. I'm like, do you realize I was holding you up the whole time? Watch happen. Like, if I let you go, like, you won't be, you'll be crying. And that's, that, that's, such a, that's such a good picture for who we are. We're climbing up these ladders. We think we're doing it all by ourselves. Meanwhile, God's holding us up and we're applauding ourselves. We're like, yeah, I did it all by myself. And God's like, no. Do you realize my hand has been behind you this whole time? Do you realize that I've been helping you? Do you realize all the blessings you have are because of me and my grace? I would not try this at home, but one of my, uh, uh, one, there was a female pastor that I knew uh, when I was growing up at, at, at my church that I grew up at in Hawaii, and she was probably one of the most faithful women on the planet. Uh, she, her knees were literally calloused. They had hard shells over them because she was just constantly on her knees in prayer. In fact, when people wanted advice, they didn't go to the senior pastor, they went to her because they were like, she's so much more wiser, she prays so much more, you could tell like the spirit of God is just with her. And I remember her telling me her testimony once. And she said, you know, Eric, I was once this very wealthy woman. And my husband was this incredibly important businessman in Korea. He owned factories. He had all this stuff. And she said, you know what I prayed for five years, Eric? She said, I prayed that my husband would go bankrupt. I was like, what the heck? You crazy. Why would you pray that? Why on earth would you pray something like that? And again, I'm telling you, don't do this at home, okay? Don't pray for somebody to go bankrupt, okay? I'm not, and I'm not encouraging that either. I'm not saying I wish everyone would go bankrupt in here. But she prayed that her husband would go bankrupt. And after five years of prayer, her husband went bankrupt. He lost everything. And guess what happened after, those, after he went bankrupt? He turned to God. And when they were at church together in Hawaii, they always did ministry together. They were always on their knees praying together. They were always ministering together. He loved Jesus just as much as she did. 
And it was only after the fact that God revealed to him, you're not your own God. See, friends, actually, sometimes the best things that can happen to us are the worst things that can happen to us. Sometimes the best things that will happen to you is when God comes and he humbles you. Because God says, I, I want you, I want you close to me. I want you humble. I want you to be one with me. Here's a second thing that can cure this, this curse that Samson had. The second thing is to fight for humility. To fight for it. We fight for humility by working on our private lives versus our public lives. You know, there's this little phrase that's used throughout the book of, uh, the, throughout Samson's life. And this phrase goes something like this. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he killed this lion. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he killed all these Philistines. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. But what's interesting about Samson is even though he was empowered by the Spirit with his gifts, Samson never produced the fruits of the Spirit. And and for me, that perplexed me. Why? Like, if the Spirit is upon you, won't you produce the fruits of the Spirit? But what the Bible makes abundantly clear in Samson's story and throughout, especially in 1 Corinthians, uh, is, is that the Spirit can sometimes give you his gifts but not give you the fruits. That sometimes there are people in this world who have the gifts of the Spirit, but don't have the fruits of the Spirit. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, Paul basically says, Look, if you can speak in the tongues of angels, but you do not have love, you're like a clanging symbol. It means nothing. You can have great outward appearance of gifts, but if internally your heart's a wreck, he's like, it means nothing. Jesus in the book of Matthew says, right? He said, there are those who are going to come to me at the last day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? And he says, I never knew you because you didn't have the fruits of the Spirit. See, you can have the gifts of the Spirit, but not the fruits of the Spirit. And here's, here's, here's my fear is that our church would become such a talented church, such a pleasant church to look at outwardly, on the outside, publicly. We could have great worship leaders, great speaking, great chairs, great music, great whatever. And yet internally we could be suffering by not having any of the fruits of the Spirit. You know, to be honest with you, I don't care, I don't care about this stuff. I don't care about the band, about the music. I, if we had... Dun, 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 if, we, if that was our worship music, but all of us produced the fruits of the Spirit, I would be happy. I don't care if we have lights or if we worship outside in the rain. If we have the fruits of the Spirit, man, God is pleased with us. God is pleased with us when we produce the fruits and not the talents. We spend so much of our time curating and crafting our public lives. We spend hours researching the latest fashion trends and the latest makeup stuff and just so that we can have an outward face that looks good to people. We spend hours, days, months, years building our career so that we can have a stunning public appearance. We spend hours designing the right space in our home so we can show them off to people. But how much of our time do we devote to our inward selves? To producing the fruits of the Spirit. How much time do you devote to actually reading your Bibles, praying, working on yourself, and producing the fruits of the Spirit? You know, when people want to know who you are, they, they don't look at your Instagram accounts. You know, one, one of my best friends, his name is Brian. Some of you may know him. He's the nicest man next to Jesus. That will, that's what we say all the time. He's one of the friendliest, nicest, patient guys. And you know a question he gets constantly? If you ever meet his brother... People who meet his brothers or his wife, they always ask his brother and his wife, hey, what's Brian like at home? Is he really this happy all the time? And his brothers and his wife will be like, yeah, he is. And people are like, wow, that's amazing. Because people know, you know as well, it's not about your public appearance that matters, it's what happens in the privacy of your home that matters. You see, people might care about the flash and the glamour, but God only cares about what you do in your private life.
So what do you do in your private life? How do you spend that time? What do you do? I mean, you might, you might have a glamorous Facebook account where you are, are, are you know, hashtagging certain things, becoming the social, whatever. But, but what do you do privately? What do you do privately when no one's looking? When only God sees you? That's what your heart really looks like. You know, in his book, The Road to Character, David Brooks, who was not a Christian when he wrote this, I believe, I've heard recently that he's converted. Uh, David Brooks makes a distinction between Adam number one and Adam number two, and I'll, I'll explain what that means. Adam one is what he calls the outward giftedness, uh, someone who has skills, talents, or what he calls resume virtues. It's the things that you put on your resumes. That's the Adam one, right? It's your talents, your, your, your skills, your, your craft, or whatever your job is, right? And then he says Adam two is people's inner life. It's what he calls the eulogy virtues. It's the things people will list out for you when you die and when you pass away. Like, what will you be known for? And listen to what uh, David Brooks says. He said, Adam, Adam's one and Adam's two live by different logics. He says, Adam one, which is the resume one, the resume virtues, he said, lives by a straightforward utilitarian logic. It's the logic of econom- uh, economics. Input leads to output. Effort leads to reward. Practice makes perfect. Pursue self-interest. Maximize your utility. Impress the world. And you can do that. You know how to do that. You've been trained your whole life how to do that. Hey, if I study this hard, I'm going to get this kind of grade. If I put in this much work at work, I'm going to get this promotion. I'm going to do these things. I know how to work on my resume virtues. But then he says this, Adam 2, which is the internal virtues, the eulogy virtues. He says, Adam 2 lives by an inverse logic. It's a moral logic, not an economic one. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. And listen to this. Success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride. Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. See, Adam 2 is so much harder to, 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 to actually fight for. Adam 1 is easy. It's, it's logic. Hey, I'm going to put this much in. I'm going to do this. But Adam 2, man, you've got to give up things. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to be selfless. You've got to give up yourself. You've got to forget of yourself. You've got to pursue other people's interests. You've got to do things that are hard for you. And yet this is the task for us. If, you, if we want to be a people who are humble... If we want to be a people that are not cursed with success, we have to continuously be working on our internal selves. Stop faking it till you make it. Stop putting out a persona. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. People may care about the outward appearance, but God cares about what you do in your private life, what your thoughts are, what the secrets of your hearts are. He cares about that, and that's all that should matter to you. This leads us to our third point, the gospel according to Samson. How do we get this? How do we get this humility? Even further still, how do we work out this salvation in fear and trembling? You know, the most important moment in Samson's life is actually his death. The most faithful event of his life is actually the manner in which he died. So you see, Samson's life or the end of his life is actually a picture or a type of Christ is what theologians would call it. They call it a type of Christ because in the Old Testament, there are types of Jesus that exist. There are types of Jesus that point us forward to the real Jesus. They are shadows or figures of what Jesus would ultimately do for us. And in the same way, Samson serves as this type or as this picture or as this shadow, they would say. Because if you look here, both Samson and Jesus were betrayed by someone 
who had been their friend. Delilah for Samson and Judas Iscariot for Jesus. Both died with arms outstretched. Samson pushing over pillars. Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. Both appeared completely struck down by their enemies. Jesus Christ, the Romans, and for Samson, the Philistines. And maybe we could argue for Jesus Christ, Satan himself was his enemy. But here's the thing. Both of them were saviors alone. If you look throughout the book of Judges, uh, uh, Othniel, Ehud, uh, even Gideon, they saved the nation of Israel by actually rallying together an army. But Samson is the only one that saves all of Israel just by him alone. Just by knocking over these pillars. And in the same way Jesus did not need an army, Jesus was a savior alone. And on the cross, Jesus brought the power of Satan to nothing. On the cross, Jesus paid for your sins and for my sins. On the cross, Jesus gave to us a righteousness that was not our own. Meaning that we don't have to work hard. We don't have to do anything for our salvation. Jesus gives us all the works, all the good works he ever performed in his life. He gives it to us and he says, you don't need to strive for salvation. You don't need to work hard for salvation. I give it to you freely. All you have to do is humble yourself and acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you need me. That's it. That's it. That's all you need to receive this gift. It's to realize that you have no power in your salvation. That you have no strength in your salvation. And friends, this gospel message is what will humble us as we meditate on it daily. See, the work of, the work of you know, working out your salvation in fear and trembling is constantly trying to get yourself to understand the depths of your salvation. Because you see, when you understand that Jesus Christ was the Savior alone, that you had no part in it, when you had no work in it, it makes you realize again, wow, I have nothing to offer Jesus. I have no power. I have no strength. I have no might. I have nothing that I could have done for Jesus. And Jesus says, here's my gift free uh, for you to receive. God humbles us when he makes us realize that what happened to Jesus on the cross is what should have happened to us. And he encourages us and he lifts us up once again when he reminds us that all the work that Jesus Christ did in his life was for you and for me. Look, friend, this is the key to humility. This is the key to living a life that's completely in humble submission to our Lord and our Savior is when you begin with your salvation, you begin by saying, God, I I need you. I need you now. I need you to help me conquer my sins. I need you in every aspect of my life. And friends, as we drive this gospel deeper into our hearts, as we meditate on it daily, day in and day out, and as it gets super redundant, but we just keep doing it because we know that this is the key for us to humble ourselves. Friends, I'm telling you, you will. You will come before God and say, God, I need you. Not only for my salvation, but for everything that I have in this life. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, as I was preparing this sermon myself, Lord, I, I felt very much like the, the young rich ruler, God, that's expressed in the Gospels. The young rich ruler who comes to Jesus and says, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you've got to give up all your wealth and your possessions. And the rich young ruler walked away sad. And God, I know for many of us in this room, we're sad. In fact, maybe throughout this message, Lord, They were fighting up against your word and saying, that cannot be, that cannot be, that cannot be. And Lord, we pray that in this moment, Lord, that you would just help us now. Your spirit would help us because we need this help, Lord. We're not strong enough. We need your help to even receive this message. That wealth, that success, 
is a curse at times. That it is not always a blessing, but God, it can be a curse because of the arrogance and pride it builds in us. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray a very dangerous prayer, but we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be humble. That you would help us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That, God, you would help us to be a people who produce the fruits of the Spirit and not just the gifts of the Spirit. That, God, we would be a people completely sold out for you and for you alone. That we would make you the utter center of our lives. Not our work, not our success, not our financial gain, not our homes, not our public appearance. But you and you alone would be the center of our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would help us to make you the center of everything. We thank you. We pray this all in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.